Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Election R&D Dialogues. My name is Erica Maldonado-Singh. I'm the Community Engagement Manager at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. From now through November, this series will focus on the critical moments leading up to the 2020 election. It's hosted by the Center's co-directors, Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy, and is in partnership with the USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. We welcome your questions and ask that you submit them using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Now it's my pleasure to introduce your hosts, though they need no introduction. Bob Shrum is a veteran Democratic strategist who's worked on John Kerry and Al Gore's presidential campaigns and Senate campaigns for Joe Biden and Barbara Mikulski. He's the Carmen and Lewis Warshaw Chair in Practical Politics, and he's a director of the Center for the Political Future. Mike Murphy is a Republican strategist who's worked on six presidential campaigns, including John McCain and Jeb Bush. He's a political analyst for NBC News, and he's the co-director for the Center for the Political Future. Mike, I'll let you take it away. Well, Erica, thank you. Well done, and welcome, everybody, to our R&D dialogue here. We're very excited about this today. I'm going to start with a quick uh, housekeeping explanation, because we we have a fellows program at the USC Center for the Political Future that we're very proud of, zeroed in on practical politics. You know, everybody, it's, it's kind of funny, everybody has an opinion about politics because almost everybody rightfully votes. It's kind of like college football. Everybody could be the coach. But it's the people who have really done it who have a lot to teach. So what we do at the center every semester is bring in two to three fellows who who've really lived a life in politics on either side, be it in journalism, government, elected office to meet with students, to, to lead seminars, to be at our panel discussions, uh, and frankly contribute a tremendous amount. And we are so excited about the coming fall semester. Um, we've got an outstanding uh, allocation of fellows. We're kicking the whole thing off here on Zoom with these digital dialogues while uh, we deal with the coronavirus uh, uh, struggle. So I'm going to get to our super special guest today in a second, but first I want to give you a calendar update for two other of our fellows who are also going to be doing one of these R&D dialogues. One is uh, Republican Congresswoman Mimi Walters, who represented Orange County from 2015 on, uh, was, a, was a real player inside the House Republican Caucus. She's a fellow. She's going to be joining us here on Zoom for a dialogue on June 18th. Also, from California, our former state um, treasurer and a one-time controller, John Chang. Uh, who, who's a, a good Democrat and had a long career in California state government in elected office. You got any questions about your taxes in California? He's the guy to talk to. So he'll be joining us as well as a fellow, and we will see him on Zoom on July 16th. Now, all this stuff is on our website, the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife, and, of course, we have a Twitter feed at USC Political Future. Now, I am uh, our guest today is another one of our star fellows, California Senator Barbara Boxer, before that Congress, the California member of Congress, a huge player in the Democratic Party, a huge player in the U.S. Senate. Now, I'm a Republican, so we didn't agree on many issues, but uh, I, can, I can tell you she is an expert poll, 
who in a very competitive world of California Democratic primaries was uh, incredibly successful and uh, has an insight like very few do into how the Senate works and how California works. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-director at the Center for the Political Future, a man who is not only famous in politics, but is leading in this time of Zoom calls from home and sweatpants, a personal crusade to save the American necktie industry. With that, I'll turn it over to my friend Bob Trump. Well, somebody has to look like a Republican, so that's why I have the necktie on. Uh, uh, I'm really honored that Barbara Boxer has agreed to be a fellow and honored that she's joining us today for the first of these conversations. And I want to talk uh, as we go along, and I think Mike does too, about the state of the 2000 or 2020 campaign. But first, I'd like to ask Senator Boxer if she could reflect on her journey from being on the county board of supervisors to being a member of Congress who actually quite famously walked over from the House floor to the Senate uh, during the uh, Anita Hill controversy uh, to express her solidarity uh, to becoming a historic figure in 1992, the year of the woman, when so many women were elected to the United States Senate. Could you tell us a little bit about that journey and whether at the beginning of the time you started running for the Board of Supervisors, you thought someday you might end up being one of the most powerful senators in the country? Well, thanks for that question. And Mike and and Bob, it's just great to be with you. I'm so excited about teaching. I think if you ask most people who have kind of made history one way or the other, what they thought about at the time, they didn't think about that. I mean, for me, it was just nothing that was planned, Bob. It was, um, you know, I I grew up in a very middle-class apartment house in Brooklyn, New York. I lived six blocks from Ebbets Field. I uh, had a wonderful childhood, very modest, super modest. And um, in those years, because I was born in 1940, so I'm OLD, in those years, there were there were no hopes that a woman could ever go into politics. Are you kidding? I remember my mother said when I was growing up, there's there's one woman in the U.S. Senate, and she's so interesting. You know, like, whoa. Of course, it was Margaret Chase Smith. And my mother said, you know, she smokes these little cigars, and she's really different. And I didn't think much about it. So the, the long story short is I got into politics it was accidental. The Vietnam War started. I was a young mother, young kids. I thought it would never end. It felt like it would never end. It, it went on and on. And I said, what kind of world is this? And then the environment came up as an issue in women's rights. So I started, I ran for my first office in 1972, the first time I ever lost. It was very, very close. I ran up against a very nice incumbent, lovely guy. And uh, I didn't give up because I read a Ms. Magazine article that said, women are, take it too personally. You know, Richard Nixon lost those, these many times, and Abe Lincoln lost these many times, and women take it too personally. Don't give up. So I thought, well, I'll give it another shot. So then I went 11 straight times, never dreaming I'd wind up in the U.S. Senate. But to sum it up, it was um, truly I was a person that was taken with issues that just touched my heart 
And I thought, even if I can't win, and nobody gave me a chance in hell of winning the Senate race. Believe me, you remember Mel Levine, Leo McCarthy ran. They were lovely, wonderful candidates. And I got there. That's the story. What was it like when you arrived? Oh, it was... I mean, Barbara Mikulski was the first Democratic woman ever elected to the Senate on her own. And discovered when she got there that there was no bathroom for women senators and went to the to George Mitchell and said where's the bathroom he said use the spouse's bathroom on the third floor and pretty soon Barbara being Barbara there was actually a woman's room well I have to tell you I just first of all thank you for helping Barbara get elected she was my mentor and best friend and um, I just talked to her a few days ago by the by uh, checking in on her she's doing great and she's working at Johns Hopkins, and she loves it. She said, this is my second act. But be that as it may, uh, Barbara was one of my mentors. And before I decided to run, I went to her. You'll appreciate this. Because as you say, she was the first woman elected in her own right, Democrat. I, I served with her in the House. I loved her. So I said, what should I do? I could stay in the House forever. I'm in a safe district. The chances of my winning this race are slim to none, but I have to get out of the house. I can't take Newt Gingrich's leadership. It's so mean. I just, I don't want to be part of it. And she looked at me and she says, you know, Barbara, and this is good for the students to know. She said, you could stay in that house for 30 years and never get anywhere. <laughs> she said, if you get to the Senate just as a freshman senator, you could stop a bill from moving forward. You could you know, use all the rules of the rule book. Tell me about the race. I said, well, I'm running against two guys who were wonderful. She said, I ran against two guys who were wonderful. One of them was Mike Barnes. And she said, guess what happened? The guys were fighting each other. And I came right up through the middle while no one was looking. And that's exactly what I did. I was an asterisk in the polls. And you, our students should know this, how you never know how it's going to turn out when you start. So uh, those two were fighting each other. Uh, Leo McCarthy and Mel Levine, both beautiful, would have made great senators. And meanwhile, Anita Hill happened. And the whole country looked at the Senate and they said, where are the women? Well, there were only two. There wasn't a person of color, for example, on the Judiciary Committee that was dealing with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. No women. And I, I, I won. I really am a humble person in the sense that I was a good candidate, but it was the fact that everyone looked at the Senate and said, we need more women. So they trusted me and they elected me. Mike? <laughs> I'm a little curious because, you know, people who haven't really worked in politics often kind of combine everything in D.C. You were in the House and then in the Senate. And beyond what Barbara was telling you about, kind of as a senator, you have the power to stop a lot. What's the culture like in the House versus the Senate? Because I, people don't know this, but it is there is there is very different, and it's been changing. You saw it change yes, during I your did. political career. I'd love your love your kind of take I on did. that. Well, I, I I love the House. It was when I got in there, it was so bipartisan, and it was Tip O'Neill and Bob Michael, right? And they would talk to each other and just no surprises, no antagonism. A lot of love there. And where the differences were, the differences were. And no one was demonized for thinking of it differently. But it was the kind of time where Tip O'Neill would come up if he needed a vote and he'd say to me, well, do you think you could vote for X, Y, Z? And I said, oh, God, that just goes against my district. They're, 
they, they don't want to spend that much on defense and they, they want to see, you know, more, they want to see more focus on the soft power of diplomacy. And he'd say, well, if I don't need you, I'll let you go. And then he'd go over to Bob Michael and he'd say, do you got anybody for me? <laughs> That's how it worked. And it was sweet. And, um, you know, we had a bipartisan group that used to go out to dinner and included John Kasich in it. It was um, beautiful. But then it started to change, quite honestly, Mike. And you went through the changes, and Bob Schrum knows about the changes. And suddenly, and I'm saying Newt Gingrich because he really led the charge in that direction. It was the politics of personal destruction. And I saw people get destroyed. I saw Tony Coelho get destroyed. I saw Jim Wright get destroyed. And then Newt Gingrich got destroyed. It, it's so crazy. And I didn't like the feel of it. And it, the House began to lose this camaraderie. And they used words like uh, Democrats were unpatriotic and all of this kind of stuff. It wasn't for me anymore. And that took me to Barbara and Barbara encouraging me. When I got to the Senate, the Senate was so much nicer than it is today. Again, yeah. you had um, moderate Democrats, you had liberal Democrats, you had moderate Republicans, conservative. But all of it was such good camaraderie. And that's unfortunately, it started to change when I left and uh, anyhow, you, you're, you're really good at analyzing why, but that's my story. And that's, that's what it was like. I, I served in the golden age of the house and a little bit of the golden age of the Senate with Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch working together on healthcare, John McCain, you know, I was fortunate. What, what surprised you the most when you got to the Senate? You know, Dole used to always tell the great joke about being a young member of the house he got there and looked around at all the statues and everything. How did a hayseed like me from Russell, Kansas ever get here? And two days later, it was like, how did these clowns all get here? <laughs> so what, what was the biggest surprise in the Senate when you made the transition? Well, the trend, it's so interesting because there's so many, so many more members of the House, 435. And yeah. here you go into the Senate, there's 100 people. And it changes the dynamic. And pretty soon you recognize, if you can't get 60 votes, you're nothing. You, yeah. you go nowhere. Now, in the House, all you had to do was convince the leader, in this case now it's Nancy, uh, if you want something, you don't really need to go get anybody on the other side. It's sad. But now, when I got to the Senate, I recognized this. And so it really made me open up my eyes to more diversity of thought. Um, I, re I also realized very quickly how much power an individual senator does have. I mean, when you could stop the, the Senate from adjourning, just that alone is a lot of power. And it yeah. gives you the, well, why, Barbara? What is it? <laughs> well, I demand vote on X, Y, Z for all of its um, difficulties. And I did have, I mean, the minute I got there, we had the Bob Packwood situation. So that got me crossways with Dole. He thought I was very partisan. I wasn't. I, I just could not see how we could keep a senator there. 21 women said had abused them. So it, it got me crosswise with McConnell. It got me. So yeah, I had my issues. But in general, it opened up. It made me a better person. I mean, it just made me see things from different people's eyes, even people in my own party. Whereas in the House, you sort of stick with the folks who have similar, similar views. And it was a nice atmosphere. If you needed someone else, you reached out. But here, you had to reach out, and you had to 
build those coalitions. Let's talk a little bit, since you're, you just referred to the polarization that's overtaken the Senate and the House, for that matter. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the most polarized presidential campaign of our lifetimes, and that's the pandemic election of 2020. How different is this race going to be because of the pandemic? Trump is dominant right now in terms of the news, and Biden is being accused by the Trump campaign of hiding, hiding in his basement. What's really happening in your view in this race? Well, what's happening is that all eyes are on the incumbent president. We are hurting. We are, you know, I'm close to tears when I think about how much we're hurting and the people who have lost family members and a president who, in my view, has no compassion. And I just think this president is different than any other. He, he, he's on the dark side. He's not, I, I, I almost lose words, which is ridiculous for a former senator, but I think all eyes are on him because he is the leader who's supposed to pull us out of this hurtful time. He doesn't seem to have the span of attention to deal with the realities. He is giving mixed messages. He's got his CDC on the one hand talking about how we have to social distance and protect each other. And then he doesn't seem to care. It's uh, stunning. I, I don't think of it. Look, I've never seen a presidency like this. I served with five presidents, Mike and Bob. I three Republicans, starting with Ronald Reagan and two Democrats. And listen, I didn't agree with many of them, you know, on both sides, many times, truly. Um, and certainly I had my run-ins with Ronald Reagan when I was in the House because he said, you see one tree, you've seen them all. Well, to an environmentalist, so no, they're all important. Um, then he tried to cut out. He tried to cut out the endowment for the arts. No, we need to support culture. And you know, there was so many. But but here's the thing about Ronald Reagan: when you beat him in the House, and we did on a lot of these issues, and he wouldn't say the word AIDS and all of these things. We when we did beat him. When I say that we beat him, I mean the Congress just said, no, we're going to keep, he backed off. He said, all right, I, I fought the battle and, uh, and he moved on. And with this guy, it's a grudge over every single thing if you don't look at him straight in the face. So this is something I've never seen from a Republican and every Republican, from whether it was W or his dad or Reagan, in a crisis. They were leaders. They had one thing they wanted to do, as did Clinton and Obama, unite the country. That's what their job is, unite the country so we are strong, so we can beat back the foe. You know, whoever the foe was, whether it was the terrorists or whether it was a disease or, or poverty. We, and I have never seen a more divisive situation. So I think... He can say Joe's in the basement all he wants, and Joe's going to come out of the basement. I guarantee you that. But I think it's shining the spotlight on Trump right now is what ought to happen because we're testing him in a time of crisis. And he's the worst president, I, I think, in history. Maybe not in history, in my lifetime. I'll go within history. Uh, I think James Buchanan can now rest easy. 
He's no longer the worst president in American but history. I'm a historian. I don't want to <laughs> every president. Mike? Yeah, look, hey, I'm a conservative about a country. I've hated Trump since 93 when I was working for Christine Pat Whitman, uh, who I helped uh, get elected governor of New Jersey for two terms. And he was running around Atlantic City, and uh, we didn't have a sanitation truck large enough to handle his problems. Um, but I look, I look at this campaign and, and Joe Biden has the biggest asset you can have in American politics in this moment. He's not Donald Trump. Right. The numbers are pretty clear. The country wants to fire Donald Trump. That said, out here in communist Los Angeles, where I now live and you know pay exorbitant taxes, I hang around with a lot of Democratic friends. And I'm always amazed at how the Republicans to rip off John Stuart Mill are kind of often the stupid campaign. But the Democrats are often the neurotic campaign. And like morale for, for the side that's sitting on the good numbers and the good opportunity is, uh, is low, at least in the intelligentsia donor type people. So I would, I would ask uh, you as a practical politician who had your name on the ballot many times here in California, what would you say to these nervous, uh, Democrats who think that the Democrats are going to screw up the election because Trump has magic powers to you know hypnotize uh red state america and is gonna gonna pull off this big upset well what i would say first of all i would los angeles is not communist <laughs> i knew you wouldn't let me let me get away with that one they're not, but go ahead they're not there in any way but what i what i think what i tell donors because i'm involved in helping joe while i can is you know joe is really the perfect candidate for our times we need a healer. We need someone who understands what it is to be cut down from tragedy and come back in your personal life, in your political life. He just, just watching him yesterday uh, speak to people who have lost uh, family members and friends from COVID. He, he, he knows what he's, he knows what he's saying. And we need a healer right now. So number one, we have a good candidate. We also have a candidate who appeals to those tough swing states we need to win. So I think they need to understand that. We, we have it all in place. Um, you know, I also think, uh, to Bernie's credit, uh, which I did not give him the last time, um, it really appears that Bernie is working hard to unite the party and bringing his people to do that. They know what the stakes are. So look, no election is guaranteed. I can't tell you what could happen. Anything can happen. We don't know what voter suppression is going to happen. We don't, we can't predict it, but we have a tremendous opportunity uh, to win. Uh, I do, Mike, I, I do agree with you. I know you're, you're a Republican and thank you for Christy Todd Whitman, whom I work with very well. I know that you sometimes think we Democrats can mess it up and we do. Uh, we, we, we can, we can do that, but I honestly think we're going to be okay. Now, the reason people look, this is a tough time right now. As a politician, I could tell you how much I loved going on the trail, loved going on the trail. And my husband would go with me and he, he, he never got involved that much, but he, he loved watching me because I just get infused with a crowd. It's a certain thing that happens, a chemistry you can't do it from your uh, from Zoom. I mean, Trump's finding out he can't do it. 
So it's very hard. But I do think if you look at where we are, I'd certainly rather be us than them. And I also, my last point is, I put a lot of stock in the Republicans. I think you're one of them. I don't know that formed that Lincoln Club. Are you one of those? Uh, no, I'm doing something else, but we're all on the okay. same side. But I, I do want to, I, I want to take a minute here because I have some Democratic friends who say, don't trust anybody who said they're for Joe and if they've been for someone else. That's wrong. It's so hard to step out against your own party. I know that. And I am so grateful. And from day one of Trump, when I started to see how it was going, how he would lie every day and over and over again, and the size of the crowd and this and all these things and going after Barack and crazy stuff. When I realized how crazy it was, I said at the time, I think on MSNBC or somewhere, the answer is going to be how many Republicans step out and are brave enough to say no. And I'm so, I admire those of you who have done this. And I know it's not forever, but it's so welcome and so critical and so hard. And I only wish some more of my colleagues in the Senate, my former colleagues, had the courage um, to do it. But unfortunately, they don't seem to. Anyway, that's off on a sidetrack. So Trump, I think, he certainly can't run on how he's handled COVID-19, although he keeps putting out tweets congratulating himself that only 100,000 people are dead or only 150,000 are going to die. He was going to try to run on the economy, even though he really actually inherited it. He didn't forge it. And that looks like a pretty iffy proposition right now. There are some people who think we'll have a big recovery in the third quarter or in the fourth quarter. If, if, if it, we don't start recovering till the fourth quarter, voters are already going to have made up their minds about the economy. So what the Trump campaign seems to me to be doing is taking every piece of dirt they can find or invent about Joe Biden and throwing it up against the wall and seeing if something will stick. How do you think Biden ought to handle that? Well, that's the oldest trick in the book. And you're all been through all this. And I've been through so many camp- 11 campaigns. And you know I've done oppo resurgency. You know, you can't be stupid. Joe's not stupid. He's smart when it comes to politics. So they know what they have. And the people see, you know, what is, what is going on. You know, so, so if your question is what do they do is they fight back with fire fight back with fire. And uh, they got enough fire. I don't care where this goes. Uh, and I don't even want to talk about some of the personal issues or any of these things, or even the kids. You want to go talk about what Hunter did? He worked as a lot. Let's talk about what these guys have done and are doing um, and, and all of that. Um, but you know what? There's one graph I saw the other day. Correct me if I'm not giving it exactly right, but this is the graph. Um, when we discovered, I believe it was the first case of coronavirus was the same day that South Korea discovered the first case. Now go forward. And so same day and even accounting for the different size of the countries, we could put that measure in. They have now about 250 deaths and we have a hundred thousand deaths. Why? This guy fiddled while Rome burned, and he fiddled, and he fiddled hard. And why did he fiddle? 
because he didn't want the market to go down. He did. He, he, he's so, um, what well, I don't want to use a really rude term, but, but he's, he's not, he doesn't have his feet on the ground. He said, Oh, the market will go down if I say something. So instead he compliments China and does nothing. And we lose people day after day after day. That's murder. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and if you know this thing in his old person, Peter Navarro, who we supposedly trust, told him this is a disaster. And he did. Oh, I don't remember seeing that memo. So I, I just think in terms of negative negatives you can throw around, Joe will have enough negatives. He doesn't like to. It's not his style, but he'll have to. And, and I know the people around him are not done. They're going to know. Kind of fascinating because it'll be the most negative campaign in history, I suspect. Mike, you look like you're anxious to say something. No, I just, you know, I'm, I think Biden has a better chance of winning. I, I, my, my hand is still sore. I wrote a $500 check to Biden. For me to do that to a Democrat, I had migraines for a week. But, you know, there's no other choice if you believe in the rule of law. And I know Joe and I like him. I, he's just, and believe me, they could Mike, have done worse. There's more where that came from. <laughs> I got my wife, believe me. She, there you go. She was on a Biden fundraising Zoom thing today and suggested more caffeine for the candidate. And she's a loyal uh, thing. And look, I don't want to be one of the Democratic bedwetters, but the Trump campaign is about $185 million more million in the bank than Joe's campaign does. Trump has a big microphone that even when he makes a fool out of himself, it's a very big microphone. And if he says Biden is loopy every day for a while, it's like, George Lakoff, the great political scientist, whose uh, son is an esteemed member here at USC, who says, don't think of it now, I'm thinking of an elephant. So Biden's loopy a hundred times. So, you, you know, I just, I, I'm a, generally a believer in the Republican school of campaigning, which is, you know, kill, 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 go, go, go. And I'm kind of waiting to see that. And I can feel the horses bucking, which is, this is a long setup to my question, which is why even though, like a lot of political consultants, I believe that the vice presidential choice as a voter thing is massively overrated, but it does say something about the candidate. And in Biden's case, because of his advanced years, that that will be a big signal about government in the future, et cetera, et cetera. So I will, uh, I'll ask you, who do you think, and I'll ask you for your first and second choice, uh, to kind of create a field here or top two that are most interesting to you. So I don't, unless you want to pin down on one person, but who would you pick if you were Joe Biden? I'm so not going to put the names out there. <laughs> I just, you, you've been in politics. I just did a, uh, an interview with Politico. Here, let me let me put it this way. Uh, Joe is going to pick someone who he feels comfortable with. He's going to pick someone who is a generalist because if you, uh, I just reread a, a portion when Barack Obama interviewed Joe for the job and Barack said to him, well, how do you see the vice presidency? What, what issues do you want to take on? And, and Joe answered me, said, every issue, I want to be the last person in the room when we're talking about everything. So I think he's going to look for someone with that ability, one that he feels he can totally trust, one that he feels he could turn to for good advice on all these issues, I, I want to see someone who, who is smart and who is compassionate and who's a healer. I want to see a healer. And it could be someone, uh, truly, uh, in office now, 
Or it could be something, someone outside the box too. Let's just say there's some fabulous, and I'm for a woman, of course, on the ticket. It's going to be a woman. I'm for a woman of color on the ticket. Let's say it's a, it's a physician who spent her life in public health. I'm thinking outside the box. It doesn't have to be one of these fabulous House members or Senate members, but there's plenty of those and plenty in state government to choose from. So, but truly, I would never really tell Joe who to pick, but I think he should follow the rules that he set for who he wants. Someone who's a pal, who's a partner, who you can turn to on foreign policy, you can turn to on anything and, and, and get opinions. And once the decision is made, be loyal, because that's what it's about. Do you think that uh, he also ought to give some consideration to who can help him, either in some of the critical states Hillary Clinton lost the last time, or with some of the demographic groups who didn't turn out in the same numbers for Clinton that they turned out for Barack Obama? Yes, I do think so. I think he lays out the people, and then he says, these six are amazing, but This one's from a swing state, for example, Florida. Uh, This other one's from a swing state, George. I don't know which states he's going to go for. And look, and to get back to Mike's point, we need 270 electorals. I'm not worried about winning the popular vote. We've been there and done that quite a bit. (laughs) I know. By millions. (laughs) This whole electoral college is just, there ought to be a whole course on it at USC about what the hell. But be that as it may, it is what it is, and it's not going away. So, yes, your question is right on target. If you pick someone from a blue state, it doesn't really gain you anything uh, in terms of the electoral vote. And I agree with Mike. It's going to be close. I don't care what anybody says because of the way we're structured. So, yeah, I would give consideration to what do they bring me in terms of the swing state or, or philosophy or, you know, like that. Or demography. It might be demography. I I think a woman of color will excite a lot of voters who didn't really turn out in enough numbers. And I, and he, I hope he does choose a woman of color. We'll see. Do you think it was a mistake? uh, Go ahead, Mike. No, I just, I'm going to make Bob's head explode in real time for the 12th (laughs) time by explaining to him the obvious choice for government is Gina Raimondo, the best democratic governor in America who rescued Rhode Island from bankruptcy. And with the cost of this pandemic, we're going to need some of those skills. It's not a big political win, but it screams competence, which should be one of Biden's ace cards uh, against Trump. And Biden's going to need somebody to take the front line on domestic policy and say no once in a while, which is why the public employee unions don't like her, because he's going to deal with all kinds of fiscal problems. So I don't think she'll be picked, but from a government point of view, I would say she ought to be picked. He's on the list, as she should be. The beauty is it's going to be a long list. It's going to be a long list, and uh, that says a lot about my life. When I got to the Senate, they said, you're the woman. We tripled our numbers. This is true, from two to six. (laughs) And there were 94 guys. You know, uh, it's been a very long struggle. Yeah, it's it's been amazing. I keep telling Mike that I think Gina Raimondo probably won't get picked, but when he gives his reasons for picking her, you know that he may be a never-Trumper, but he really is a conservative Republican. Absolutely. That's right. And, and, and that's fine. And, and so we appreciate your, uh, you know, and I hope if he picks her, you'll become a Democrat. 
Oh, let's not go crazy. I'll be right back in, uh, uh, on the other side. So I, I'm going to ask you one last question, then we're going to turn this over to the audience. Sure. Do you think it was a, a smart decision and the right decision for Biden to announce way in advance that his running mate was going to be a woman? You know, I can answer that either way. Um, I think by doing it, it was, it was a very important and courageous thing to do. And, and then you don't have the battle over, should he pick a man? Should he pick a woman? So it was leadership. I like it. It was leadership. You know, if you're not a leader, you stay in the corner. Oh, I'm open to everybody. I, I like it. Just as a Democrat, a very proud, proud, proud Democrat knowing my party is flawed, knowing my party gets divided, knowing I'm now considered mainstream when I was the most liberal member. (laughs) Knowing that, you know, we have our differences. I have to say women have been the heart and soul of the party. People of color have been the heart and soul of the party. And um, I think there's a point in time when you have to say, we recognize it. Now let's get that enthusiasm level up. And look, if we can just get young people to vote at 50% turnout, and that brings us to, of course, USC. I mean, and the reason I'm so excited about my course, because I want to demystify politics. I want to make people, I realize my whole lifetime in politics, the one nagging thing I was aggravated about, because I'm a problem solver, turnout, I could never, I mean, we did, and I knew in my case, and Mike and Bob as, as great consultants, you know this is true from different angles. Um, Mark Melman was my pollster every time I ran to the Senate. And Mark's wonderful. I loved his numbers. So anyway, Mark would say, I have good news. Every campaign I ran, the four, statewide, he said, I have good news and bad news. Can we move? So, okay, you know, what's the good news? Well, the good news is in a high turnout, you win. I said, oh, great. He said, but here's the not-so-good news. In a medium-sized turnout, it's too close to call. And in a small turnout, you're gone. And so that is a very important point. You know, what is, what is Trump's goal? To keep people home, divide us, suppress. It's so sad. And our goal is to go for the biggest turnout possible. And I think a woman of color would give that excitement, assuming it's a great pick, which I'm hoping it will be. Yeah, it's funny. I I did a lot of races with Mark, and one of his great virtues is he never sugarcoats the results. He always tells you exactly what's going on, and you can get exasperated at times. (laughs) How is this going to end up? But it's very, I mean, he's a very, very professional and very insightful pollster. Mike, you have anything else? Yeah, and then we're going to turn this over to questions. Melman's been a good friend of mine for, oh, God, 25 years. We started together, even though we were in different parties, uh, when he came out of the Yale Political Science Department. But I just want to I want to press you one click on the woman of color idea. Very popular inside the Democratic Party, where identity is a big part of defining the coalition. But you're running against a racist with Donald Trump. Why take risks? that you might energize one constituency, which is already pretty energized against Donald Trump and quite energized for Joe Biden. He beat two African-American candidates who couldn't even survive the prelims. They had so little African-American voter support. 
So why is that not something Trump would like? Because then he can go make the campaign about slave reparations and things like that and move the focus from firing Donald Trump to what's wrong with the Democratic ticket. I think there's a lot of risk in that move. But what do you First think? of all, he, Trump's going to do that anyway, whether there's a African-American. He, he's a racist, and the racists are not voting Democratic. So I'm not standing in the corner about that one. And, you know, it is time for our nation to heal, Michael. It is. And look, he's got to pick a great person. Barack Obama won because he was a great candidate. you got to find someone like that. And that's, that's the hard part. And, yeah, I think but you're making another strong point, which is that Joe already does very, very well with African Americans. Um, he doesn't do as well with Latinos. Um, and... Hillary Clinton, they loved her, but they didn't vote for her. Look, it's a conundrum. So when I find myself in a conundrum, Mike might be right, or Bob might be right, or maybe Mike got us right, I say do the right thing. Do the right thing. Try to heal the nation. You know, I, I have to say, you know, I get the chills when I say it. We are hurting. We are hurting. People don't have jobs. They're lining up to get food. And this guy... In the, in, in, the, in the Oval, whoever is the vice presidential candidate, he does nothing about any of it. He's hurting the country by the day. He goes to a launch of a rocket on the day that we went over 100,000 dead, doesn't say a darn thing about it. And um, I'm just saying, it, it, and I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic. I, I think we, Joe will find someone who's really good. And I think we'll heal the nation. And I think we'll make this. But keep your eye on the 270. One final point, you two genius consultants, I'll say that seriously, you are. You're, you're beautiful. I mean, I trust either of you uh, with my campaigns. Um, you know, you know that it's all about 270. And, and so everything we do to get to that 270, and you know, one of the criticisms I had of Hillary's campaign is they kept saying, we can make the map bigger. We can make the map bigger. So what did they do? They went to states where, you know, we didn't need them. And by the way, at the end, of the day, they didn't win them. So we've got our work cut out for us. But I honestly do think I would go with Bob when he says we need to excite the Obama base. That was a winning base with an African-American at the top of the ticket. Okay, Erica, I think we should turn this over to you, and you've got questions from the audience. Go ahead. I do, and I'm very impressed that we have many students who I would imagine would have been super just kind of clocked out and enjoying their summer, and they're here joining us, so thank <laughs> you. Uh, so this question is from Devin Patel, and uh, you know, he's, he says he's been a proud supporter of Joe Biden since day one, and he faced a lot of scrutiny from his peers for supporting mm -hmm. him. Uh, so he asks, how do you recommend Biden change his message to resonate with young voters that were perhaps for Bernie so we don't have a repeat of 2016? Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. I think, uh, I don't think Joe has to change his message, but I think he does need to have more young people as surrogates for him. Um, I think that really matters to young people. And there's some wonderful folks out there at universities and, at, um, and in entertainment and in sports who can help Joe and stand with Joe. Um, 
And, and I think Joe needs to stress the things that young people really care about. And Joe is there. He's there on health care. He's, he's there on student, forgiving student loans. He's there on climate change. So I think the, it's good. And by the way, I don't know. I don't know what Mike and Bob think about this, but certain Bernie people are never going to be, never going to be for Joe. And I don't think we should waste a hell of a lot of time on them. Some of them are going to go bye-bye. So if, if, you know, they just are going to sit home or go for some other candidate, we need to get new people, new young people. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I mean, one of the problems with politics is the media always looks for conflict. So a few loud Bernie people are defined as all Bernie people. Well, Joe's best, you know, uh, economic group, I mean, excuse me, best voter group where people are participating in Democratic primaries. He's going to do 95% of them. And if you look at young voters, his numbers are pretty good, and they can get better, and Trump is a focusing problem. So he's got to win the battle with Trump to define why Trump needs to be fired, which isn't the hardest thing to do this year because that's where the country already is. Um, I do think there's some style points, and I, I agree with what you said about that. But this is the kind of thing they can overreact to uh, by a vocal very few, and I yeah. think they, they need to be careful about it. The biggest risk Biden has, if your focus group kind of, if the people identify Democrat and identify anti-Trump and ask them to complain about Biden, if they're young, they will say corporate Democrat. And I'll bet our questioner has heard that from his or her peers. But, um, you know, the, one of the little things that old uh, Paul's like the three of us have learned is when, when you're counting votes, a happy vote doesn't count more than an okay, best choice right. vote. And so... <laughs> You know, I, 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 in the Republic, I used to run Republican governor races in blue states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And one of our little secrets was we would often make the Republicans a little bit unhappy, but we still got their votes to get a lot of other votes. Because if you make the Republicans really happy in a swing state, you're going to lose. And, and that's the art of politics. And, and base voters don't always understand that. So smile, be nice, give them something, but understand. Like we used to say in uh, Latin American campaigns, like you have a choice, amigo. You want Trump, uh, and I think I think things will work out for Joe. Erica. So I want to highlight another student question. This one's from Michelle Phillip. She says, "I hear President Trump is the worst president in American history fairly often. Can you point to a few specific policies of his that you believe earned this title?" And I think you all can weigh in on this one. Okay. Well, my start would be I. I this is the first president in my lifetime who doesn't care about uniting the country and keeps us divided and does it on purpose. Now the latest thing going around, as he said, something about the only, he tweeted somebody's comments that the only good Democrats are dead Democrats, something horrific like that, calling a, a former Republican congressman a murderer, um, just going after George W. Bush, who did this magnificent video about how we have to come around together around COVID. There is no way that this man, uh, I mean, he's in a class by himself because, and I know that Bob and Mike will agree, when you get elected, whether it was United States Senator, where let's say the first time I ran, I, I squeaked by. I won by about five points, but I didn't even get over 50%. So what did I know I had to do? I had to talk to the people who didn't trust me, talk to the people who didn't like what I said or didn't like me. And while not 
saying anything phony, keeping my own base, but reaching out. Everybody does that except this guy. And it has had a terrible impact. And we see the hatred on the streets. We see the, the coming apart of, 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 of a unified America that pulls together at a time of crisis. What? We can't even do that now because of him. And, you know, you hear one kid say, well, the president doesn't wear a mask. Why should I wear one? Uh, you know, and that's just the metaphor. Uh, the president doesn't, uh, isn't kind to, to, to people, makes fun of people, makes comments about people. This is not what we need. So I would say without going into the politics of his foreign policy, where he's going alone, where America always led, I mean, I could go through it chapter and verse. Uh, of how he is, you know, not brought us together. But that, to me, is the is a sin. Uh, a leader who cares more about himself than he does about the people, and he wants to keep us divided. Erica, are you worried that our election will be compromised either by mass voter fraud, foreign interference in elections, or people maybe just being afraid to show up because they're afraid of the coronavirus? This is a question from Kami Akaban. It's a very important question. Unfortunately, uh, I don't want to say I'm afraid. Uh, what I want to say is I'm concerned. I would be afraid if we had centralized voting, uh, which, by the way, a lot of people, when you talk about de demystifying politics, we have a very good system of voting because it is divided up among the states and the counties. So if you want to rig something, I'm not saying you can't, but it's a lot harder to rig it for a presidential election. What, what I'm most afraid of is voter suppression. And it, it could be done by souring people. You know, the Russian bots did that. We're going to see more of the same, you know, making people say, I can't stand it. They're all bad. You know, Mike says, oh, they're a corporate Democrat. And then the other guys go, oh, no, they're socialists. You know, you get it from all sides. And, um, and, I like corporate Democrats, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm with it. yeah, but that, thank you. How many Republicans can you get us on that? But not that many. But the point well, I want to make. all of them, publicly none. Well, right. The, the, the point I want to make is that I think voter suppression is a goal of the Trump people. I do. And I think we're going to see it by making it tougher to vote. Imagine saying that vote by mail is bad. I want to put something on the record. Every time I ran, the vote by mail was cat was done first. That it got the count. I got killed. Republicans vote by mail so much better than Democrats vote by mail. So and 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 Republicans just took a seat in uh, California, tough election in Orange County because it was vote by mail, and they were way way better organized. So all this stuff is ridiculous in terms of making it sound like we're going to be all this stuff to scare people about vote by mail when it's the right thing to do. So yeah, I'm concerned. I'm not afraid at this point, but I'm concerned. Yeah, I'll just give you an amen on that vote by mail thing. Those of us who worked in the party for 30 years, we love vote by mail. It was invented here by the California Republicans. And then back in the day when we were viable in this state, uh, it was it was very powerful. So the whole idea we got I don't think Trump understands what vote by mail is. I think he thinks it's some universal suffrage thing, and a few of the dregs around him have got him worked up about it. But the truth is, one, because of a pandemic, if you're for voting, a fundamental American value, you have to be, if you 
believe in our democracy. You have to be provoked by mail. And the Republican Party has nothing to fear from. JFK carried California on election night in 1960. Then as they counted the vote by mail ballots, his lead became a deficit of about 30,000 votes, and he lost the state. Uh, Erica? Didn't have Mayor Daley. <laughs> if you were still in the Senate, what would you want to see in a future economic relief package to help Americans through this pandemic? That's a question from Harry Burke. Oh, boy, that's a great question. If I were to sit down and, and write a bill, I think the way I would approach this economy uh, is a couple of ways. How do you keep people afloat until we know we're going to turn the corner? So what's the best way? And I know Republicans and Democrats have been trying to do it in a little bit obtuse ways. I think there are better ways to do it, but I don't know exactly what I'd come down to, but I would say, what's the best way to keep people afloat? It's like we're in a ship, it's taking water on, it's called America, and we're going down, but we have to not sink. And that is absolutely critical. And then the second thing I would do, I would have a national service program. It, the time is ripe. John McCain, I worked with him on it. We never got it through. National service. So right away, you have this fabulous new program. So you take a lot of people right now out of the workforce doing important things, helping senior citizens, helping nursing homes, uh, working in schools, helping with things like this, where we're doing wonderful programs with the new technologies, so many things. And then I'd have an infrastructure program. I would. And I know all these things cost money, but I also know we will come back from this. We will. That's the one thing I agree with Trump when he says we're going to come back. Yes, we will come back, but we better do the right things. Small business is key. Let's make sure those programs are really working for the true small business. So to sum it up, I'd have an infrastructure program, 55,000 bridges are structurally um, insufficient, meaning they could collapse, and they need to be fixed. 50% of the roads are in disrepair. I know this because I chaired the Environment and Public Works Committee. So if we have that, we would put millions of people to work for the next five years. Meanwhile, we can go to these college graduates now who are suffering, suffering. They all have jobs now. They don't have jobs. I have one in my family. I know what it's like. It takes the air out of your heart. Put them into this national service program. Let them do some great work. Build up their resume. Let's, we just have to get through this. You know, if it takes another year, whatever it takes. Uh, Erica, do we have time for one more quick one? I think we do. This question is from Tommy Nguyen. He says, the recent news of George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey has shocked the nation. How can the country aim to protect community of colors and help mend the polarizing issue of race? Well, I said to my husband the last few nights, every time the video comes up of the officer killing, killing this gentleman, um, I watched it once. I cannot watch it. The pain in watching someone die slowly when people are saying he's dying. But they're too afraid of this officer. What's the officer going to do? Pull a gun on them? This is heart-wrenching. And it, as we know, it's been going on. When I first was running for the Senate, we have Rodney King who said famously, can't we all get along? What is wrong? What is wrong with America that this is happening? 
I'm very emotional about it. So what can we do about it? I think, you know, I know I've listened to the mayor of Minneapolis very strong. We have to channel this anger and this heart-wrenching um, sentiment in the country into a new civil rights movement. A really, and Because I lived through the first one. We, it's time for another. We've got to get rid of this president. This president is the most polarizing leader. All he could say is it was a sad situation. And when he saw the young man, Aubrey, he said, oh, he looked good in his tuxedo. Please, we need more leadership than that. So we need a new civil rights movement. And I would say right now that at least that one policeman, he ought to be charged with murder. The whole country saw it. We saw it. We saw it. And their own admission is he was accused of passing a bad $20 bill. I don't know. I, I'm sorry for rambling, but I am very disheartened. And um, it's another reason for Joe Biden, a healer, a healer. Another reason for a ticket that reflects the diversity of America. So, Senator, you weren't rambling. That was very powerful. Thank uh, you. We're very grateful to you for joining us as a fellow for next semester. We're very grateful to you for today. And uh, on future election R&D broadcasts, people will be able to see you again. Erica, do you want to wind this up? Yes, definitely. Thank you all for joining us. Please join us next Thursday, June 4th at 12 p.m. Bob and Mike are hosting a Dornsife Dialogue on the political, social, and engineering implications of misinformation on social media during the pandemic. That's uh, Thursday, June 4th at 12 p.m. And please visit our website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can never miss a future event. Follow us on our social media channels and subscribe to our podcast. We'll be live streaming these chats on our Facebook page, and you can find all videos on our YouTube channel. Mike, you have a last word? No, just follow us online. A lot more uh, programming again. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube, and visit our website for upcoming programs.